Hello, hello, and welcome to episode three of Through the Needle. This is a podcast where we are looking at neighborhood transformation and dreaming together about what in the world God might be inviting the church to do in response to that transformation. Today, we will be looking at the different types of people that are affected by or that affect neighborhood transformation, and then look at how a specific tribe of Christians are compelled and motivated to care about neighborhood transformation and love and serve their neighborhoods. At the end, I leave a few questions for us to consider until next week, when we will close out this podcast with some more specific ideas for what churches can do in the face of change. All right, let's jump right in. In a City Lab article from January 2018 titled, Low Income Communities Are Struggling to Support Churches, Patton Dodd visits a church in San Antonio called Primera Iglesia Cristiana and writes about the struggle that low income communities have in supporting churches. He follows the senior pastor around who is bivocational and tries to paint a little picture of the church, which is a small church in a very low income neighborhood. He then goes on to show that the Barna Trends found in two, well, uh, Barna Trends is an annual guide to the latest cultural, religious, and political trends designed to help you navigate a complex and ever-changing world. That's from their front cover. So, so he shows that Barna Trends found in 2016 that over half of the church plants they studied were planted in wealthier locations. D.L. Mayfield also points out that many new church plants like to go into neighborhoods that are growing fast because those places have the highest chance of success. More new people means need for new churches, and, and affluent people are more likely to commit to a local church than poor people. And yes, that is a fact. There are a number of studies that show that low-income people statistically are less likely to attend a church even though being part of a church is statistically shown to benefit lower-income people more than affluent people. Now, I'm not saying that churches shouldn't go into neighborhoods that are growing, that churches shouldn't attract people who are affluent. After all, they are people, they are humans, they are neighbors in need of the love of Christ. I'm just trying to point out where a bit of disconnect can happen as churches talk to each other across socioeconomic lines. For example, it can be easy for me to think that Christians are always the ones with the means to help others, and that we should take opportunity of our privilege to help those who are disadvantaged. But I just want to go into this article a little bit more to remind us that there are many churches and Christians in our cities and neighborhoods and counties that are struggling. So, Dodd, in his City Lab article, as I said, follows the senior pastor of Primera Iglesia Cristiana in San Antonio's West Side. He's a bivocational pastor, and it's a small church in a low-income community. Although, the pastor says his stipend from the church was recently raised from $600 a month to $1,000 a month at the time the article was written. So, what this means is that in addition to running worship services, preparing sermons, doing a radio program three days a week, a Bible study and a prayer service on Tuesdays, a house church meeting once a week in a neighborhood further away from the church, and doing job training programs on the weekends, the pastor is a full-time accountant to supplement his $1,000 a month stipend and to care for his family. But Dodd writes that, and I quote, Mora, the pastor, believes he was placed on this earth to pastor. So that's what he plans on doing. But for now, he can't make a living as a pastor because the congregation he serves 
is in an extremely low-income neighborhood. Pastor salaries are drawn from church budgets, which are drawn from the household budgets of congregants. So, in a low-income area, even when a church grows, its budget does not expand so much as stretch. Primera Iglesia Cristiana can't pay Mora much for all his efforts, so for the foreseeable future, he'll hustle. And Dodd says later, That's the loop of church economics. It needs money to serve people, but in many cases, it gets that money from the community it serves. So ministers are incentivized to plant and grow their churches in areas where people can afford to give money away. There are many more churches like this than we often think. Small churches whose members and the income they have been making has been steadily dwindling. Churches who can barely make ends meet. Yet, as Primera Iglesia Cristiana does in San Antonio, they still can offer many services to the community. Job training community cleanup days and other events, pushing for the local park renovations, going to school board meetings, all these things. And in neighborhoods that are changing, there are lots of opportunities for churches to do things like that, both affluent churches and churches like this one in San Antonio. So in this episode, we are going to look at the different types of people or players in neighborhood transformation, and then briefly look at why and how churches can care for their neighbors. So in the context of neighborhood transformation, there are more or less seven players that I see. These players are the different types of people who have some sort of stake in the neighborhood and are affected when the neighborhood changes. There's, there's likely more, but these are, what, these are the ones that I am seeing. So I would say that these players fall into these seven categories. We've got captives, changers, benefiters, missers, developers, practitioners, and defenders. So, being that the focus of this podcast is on the church and how the church responds to their neighborhood transformation, we're just going to focus on two of them, captives and practitioners. But for the sake of clarity, and hopefully for future conversations, and so we can all be thinking about the people around us and where we fit into this framework, I'm going to briefly describe each of these. And I'm not saying that any of these players are either good or bad. They can be either good or bad for the neighborhood. I'm just trying to identify the different types of people within neighborhoods. So so starting with the captives, they are, as I said in episode one, they are those who are essentially prisoners or captives to the system, specifically the housing system. They can't really decide where to move. They just have to sort of move to where they can afford rent. And the second type of players we have are the changers. These are the individuals who actively try to change their immediate neighborhood to include more things that they want. The third type of players are the benefiters. These are the passive residents in a neighborhood who don't really lobby or campaign one way or the other, but they're grateful for and they benefit from the transformation that is happening in the neighborhood. And on the other side, from the benefiters, we have the missers, the, the also the passive residents in a neighborhood who, who miss out on something or lose something as their neighborhood transforms. Maybe it's equity as their property values fall or local businesses that they used to frequent are closing so they have less retail, less funding for schools, etc. Then we have the developers. Developers are generally people outside the community who own property or buildings inside the community. And they're either actively renovating and building out these properties or they're holding on to them for the potential of future revenue making. 
Then we've got the practitioners, and these are the people who are most likely residents in the neighborhood, but not necessarily, but they are active in the life of the neighborhood. They are practitioners of community involvement. And lastly, we have the defenders. The defenders are individuals in a neighborhood who actively campaign to keep the neighborhood the same. They're defending against transformation, against change. They're defending the status quo. So these are the seven players of neighborhood change that I see. I'm sure that you can probably identify with one of them, and you can probably see where your neighbors fit into these categories. As I said, we're going to be focusing mostly on the captives and the practitioners in this episode, those who are most at the mercy of the changing neighborhoods and those with the most desire and power to help them. So defining each again quickly. Captives are the people who are trapped in the system. The luxury isn't afforded to them where they can choose the community they want to live in based on its safeness or its amenities, but rather they move to places where they can afford to maintain their life. These are the people most affected by neighborhood change. Either they are forced to move somewhere else they can afford, in the case of gentrification, or as the neighborhood declines, they lose access to amenities and services they used to have and often are driven into a deeper cycle of poverty as they lose those services. Practitioners, then, are the people with boots on the ground in the community, working for community investment and development and community unity. Community unity, that's, that's fun to say. They want to work for the good of all people in the neighborhood, but especially the poor and oppressed, because they want to see the neighborhood flourish and be a great place for its residents. This is the category that the church falls into, the practitioners. But we have to acknowledge that not all Christians have the resources and the time to give to being practitioners. There are many Christians and many churches, like the one we just talked about in San Antonio, that would be considered captives to the systems of neighborhood change. But all churches are also practitioners, in that one of their roles is to help the local body of Christ, local Christians, expand the kingdom of God by offering the services and work needed to help the poor and oppressed. Even if the local church is made up of people who would be considered captives, the church as an institution has the ability to be a practitioner. This can be as simple as organizing the people in the neighborhood to provide meals for someone who lost their job or attending specific meetings in the community. I guess we would ask then, what are churches practitioners of? Is it just community development or is there something more? Well, we could probably say what we have said thus far, that churches are also practitioners of community building, actively working so that all people in the neighborhood flourish. But we are also practitioners of the gospel of Christ. Because Christ calls us to love our neighbors and care for the poor and oppressed, the church should naturally do the same things as community organizers. But we also know that the true key to community wholeness is relationship with Christ. We don't stop at just offering services to those who are disadvantaged. We can't afford to do that. Because we know that without a relationship with Christ, without being transformed by the Holy Spirit, our work here on earth is meaningless. We will, or at least we should, do the work of being practitioners of community unity in our neighborhood, even with people who are not Christians, because that flows out of our love for our neighbors. But we can't stop just at that. Sharing the gospel is something that the church must always place an emphasis on. We do these things. We love our neighbors 
because Christ first loved us. We shouldn't shove the gospel down people's throats because that isn't very loving either, but we cannot lose sight of the reason why we are compelled to do this work in our communities. So how can any church, no matter their socioeconomic standing, be practitioners of the gospel? This is the big question, and, and it's the reason I'm doing this whole podcast, so maybe I should answer that question at some point. <laughs> but first, we're going to talk about how the Christians of my tribe, the Anabaptists, can do that. And then in the next episode, I'm going to actually offer some ideas for how churches can be practitioners of the gospel in their neighborhood as their neighborhoods change, caring for the captives of the system and seeking the wholeness and the flourishing of their neighborhoods. As I said, I am an Anabaptist Christian, a Mennonite, and Palmer Becker, yeah, Palmer Becker, I always mix his name up with Parker Palmer, who wrote a short book on vocation called Let Your Life Speak that you should probably read. Um, but anyways, yeah, Palmer Becker wrote a short pamphlet back in 2008 in which he lists three core values to Anabaptist Christians. That one, Jesus is the center of our faith. Two, community is the center of our lives. And three, reconciliation is the center of our work. Another way to put this is that Anabaptist Christians believe in Jesus, belong to community, and behave in a reconciling way. As I was studying neighborhood transformation and what in the world churches could do about it, I kept coming back to these three things as key foundations to the action steps that churches can take. So let's look at them a little bit more. In the first one, Jesus as the center of our lives, it really takes us to the core of our faith, to see how Jesus lived on earth and what his teachings and commands for his followers were. As I mentioned in episode two, one recurrent thing in Jesus' ministry was his use of Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. His focus was on this so much that he includes it as the second greatest commandment when asked about it in Matthew 22. And in their CCDA handbook, John Perkins and Wayne Gordon have this line, and I love it. It says, if Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, it's our job as the church to love and serve our neighborhood. <laughs> and Jesus models this so well. If we look at the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, he starts his ministry in his neighborhood, in his home region in chapter 4, with his neighbors there. He calls his first disciples from among his neighbors, also in chapter 4. He gives his first sermons in his neighborhood, chapters 5 to 7. He performs his first miracles there in chapter 8. He eats at his neighbor's houses, even though they were considered sinners and outcasts in chapter 9, and on and on. Jesus pays attention to the people around him, and he calls us to do the same. So with Jesus as the center of our faith, it is our job as the church to love and serve our neighborhood. And I believe that we are not just doing this work on our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the strength, the courage, the wisdom to do this work, and that the Spirit is also preparing others to join in this work with us. This is key. It isn't just us accomplishing a vision of neighborhood flourishing, but it is the power of Christ within us. The second core value to Anabaptists very obviously stresses the importance of caring for our neighborhoods. Community is the center of our lives. Now, unfortunately, it can be easy for us to think of our community as the people we choose to surround ourselves with, often our church family. 
And that isn't really a horrible thing because we should choose to surround ourselves with other Christians and be part of a local church. But our community is more than that. It also includes the people right around us, the people that we are surrounded by on a daily basis. Not just the people we surround ourselves with, but also the people we are surrounded by. Bob Lupton calls a certain type of people unneighbors. And unneighbors are, and I quote, people who live on our street but contribute nothing to the well being of our street. With the church as the center around which their busy lives revolve, they become isolated from their neighborhood. Shekinah, whom we met in episode one, also has a good word for us about the difference between being a resident and being a neighbor. Take a listen. And a resident is someone who there's just like proximity. We live close to each other or we live in the same place. But a neighbor is someone who knows you, like who looks out for you, who participates in the community. It's a part of their civic associations. Their kids go to the schools. Um, If our neighborhood is worried about affordability, we're showing up at city council advocating for more money in the affordable housing trust fund. Like we're, we're working Um, with our neighbors, even if it's something that's not impacting me. Um, And again, it's been tough because how we've seen gentrification play out is not folks typically being neighbors or becoming neighbors or thinking about how can there's a fabric of community that exists now. How can I move in and participate in that, which typically means submitting also to leadership that's already in place um, and not like taking over right so if i'm sending my kid to the school it doesn't mean like i join the pta and i take over for what i believe it should be it means submitting to the folks who are already leading there um helping to increase or build the capacity of that team right um so it's it's tough it's nuanced it's hard um, and that, that bar of like shalom, of everyone working together, it's just been challenging to see that vision. Instead, we've seen the opposite. So again, we're living in close proximity, but we're actually really segregated. And then where we do overlap, it's a clash between cultures. And then because of issues around like power, like who has power, who has privilege, there's, there tends to be a usurping of power and authority from the existing structures, which only exacerbates the same like negative narrative around race and class and power and privilege. <laughs> what, a good, what a good word for us on what it means to have community as the center of our lives. If we are simply residents or if we are unneighbors, we don't have community at the center. That means we are operating on a self-focused paradigm that is putting our needs and our comfort and our desires over the needs, comfort, and desires of our neighborhood. But when we engage our communities as neighbors, when we truly care about the people that we live around and we advocate on their behalf and they advocate on our behalf, things change, our neighborhoods change, and we start to see a glimmer of wholeness in our communities. And the final core value we have is that reconciliation is the center of our work, that we behave in a reconciling way. What better place to work for the reconciliation that Christ brings than in neighborhoods that are transforming? With a changing landscape in the neighborhood, it is likely impossible that the neighborhood will transform without some sort of need for reconciliation. 
And the church is so well situated to be a place of reconciliation, to to mediate between arguing or dissatisfied parties, being a place of peace in the midst of the chaos of transformation. As the neighborhood is transforming, the church should be working for, as Shekinah says in another part of the interview, the church should be working so that the transformation happening in the neighborhood is equitable, equitable revitalization, equitable transformation. The work of reconciliation in our neighborhoods here is key for our churches. So, where do you see your church? Does this conversation get some wheels spinning for you in your context? What is your church's role in neighborhood transformation? And how can you put Jesus at the center, working in your community for wholeness and reconciliation? I'm just, I'm just going to let you chew on these questions until we come back next week with some more tangible ideas and recommendations for churches as they engage with neighborhood transformation. So over the next week, I want you to be thinking about your church, thinking about your role in the neighborhood, thinking about the different neighborhood players that you see around you and that you see in your church, and be thinking about how the good news of Jesus can bring healing, wholeness, and equitable change to your neighborhood. So until next time, grace and peace. peace.